These, are, these eyes are not mine. If they were mine, I should be able to say, eyes, stay, stay good. <laughs> you don't, don't listen. How do you separate body and mind? You don't. <laughs> You're born with it, you'll die with it. <clears throat> well, basically, for most people, it's already separated. Because your mind is usually elsewhere, not grounded in your body. So that's one meaning of, uh, you know, the, the separation. You're sitting here, but, you know, your mind could be, you know, not here, not in the body, not even aware that you have a body. Uh, and only in the highest jhanic states are called formless. You you merely transcend the body temporarily. Uh, mind doesn't leave it. Now, it is said there's some psychic powers that some people, maybe even the Buddha, had a psychic power where uh, their mind could travel through the you know, into different realms, and maybe their body was uh, still sitting in the monastery. Uh, but, uh, you know, the average person is uh, not going to be able to do that. But, when the body dissolves, I mean, uh, in meditation, the feeling of a body can dissolve. And in your mind, it could dissolve and where you actually have no, uh, no sense of a body in a particular shape or anything. But there's sensations. But the sensations are just like floating there in empty space. There's no idea that these sensations belong in a body of this shape or that they belong to me. That is dissolved because that's a concept, that's a perception in the mind, in the brain. Uh, but if somebody looks at you or looks at me in meditation, you might see my body sitting there. But in the mind, there may not be any feeling of uh, a body. So... In, in one way, you could say that's not really separating the mind from the body, but it's it's dissolving the uh, the perception of a body. Again, the, you know, unless you actually have meditation experience to actually experience that, then it's hard to understand the meaning of it. But once you get that experience, then again, you you, you won't doubt it. And in states of jhana, you can also temporarily, you know, transcend the feeling of a body, but the mind is not really separated from it as such. You know, it's just that the perception process has been short-circuited. Actually, what meditation is, it's basically, it short-circuits the hardwired brain. Because of concentration, it's like flipping a switch, right? Like on a train track, you know, you flip a switch and say the train going this way, it goes this way. So in the same way, when we develop, you know, a, a strong concentration, mindfulness concentration and wisdom, then instead of the switch, let's say I have an itch on the head, and normally the habit would be to reach up and scratch the switch, but because of the concentration and the wisdom, that 
switch gets shifted and the energy doesn't go that way to the arm to lift up and scratch. It just goes to staying concentrated or, uh, you know, but anyway, it, it doesn't uh, go out to that way. And when you do that enough, then those habits gradually wither, those neuronal patterns gradually uh, kind of stop functioning. And you create new ones. That's what meditation is. It's creating new neuronal pathways in terms of our body uh, movements and our, uh, you know, even our thoughts. But it's done through the power of the, the, the mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So somebody was mentioning neuroplasticity, right? So, you know, the Buddha was, the, was a neuroplasticist. You know, now these people are making up this term and they think they invented it and, you know, it's something new. But, you know, the Buddha was doing this, uh, you know, changing the brain. Knew that the brain, the mind... Uh, can be changed and molded to do anything you want. The Buddha attained psychic powers where he could, you know, have infinite amounts of psychic uh, power that transcend the body and everything else. Walk through walls, fly through the air, make five or six of his bodies or a hundred of them. Almost every conceivable type of, because he wasn't limited by the brain. His mind was freed from the brain's hardwired patterns that think everything is solid and, and you can't do these things. But, you know, uh, so, you know, science has got a lot to learn. But they don't want to learn. I'm somewhat confused about the experience of emotions. Are they thoughts or sensations or a combination? Do we investigate them or just observe? Observe them come and go. Well, uh, first of all, you know, some of the Pali terms that we use, like for those aggregates I mentioned, okay? So the term for uh, what we call feelings, in, in Pali, what's translated as feelings is the word Vedana, which basically means knowing. And it's the sensation, and it's the, the feeling tone of the sensation. All the sensations that come through our senses, the, sound, smell, visible, you know, what I talked about today. As they're running through the nervous system, they're felt as something potentially painful or pleasant or neutral. So that's a feeling. Now when we talk about feelings in English, you say, oh, you hurt my feelings. That means you're feeling sad or angry. That's not feeling. That's not Vedana. That's Sankara. That's a mental formation. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of times these terms in, in Pali psychology don't fit the, the English, sometimes what they're translating in English. because uh, So, emotions are Sankaras. That means it's the reaction to some something. You know, you get emotional because you, you see your friend or you you get angry because somebody did something or you feel happy because somebody you know complimented you or whatever so it's based on some you know receiving some type of uh, you know word or experience so uh, it's a that's a sankara or a, a you know a habit formation it's uh, not a feeling necessarily, but, you know, it's, so therefore, you know, people feel sad, or I feel 
confused or I feel dejected, you know, again, these are, these are not Vedana. They're probably closer to either Sanya or really Sankara. So anyway, we, yes, you investigate them. Whatever emotion comes up, you can say, what triggered off this emotion? Why am I feeling happy right now? Why am I feeling sad right now? Well, somebody didn't uh, thank me for my gift, so I'm feeling sad, or feeling angry, or feeling, you know, whatever. Or somebody complimented me, now I'm feeling happy. Uh, or the whole, you know, whatever. Jealousy, or, uh, you know, even, you know, the whole gamut of uh, mental states. So in, in mindfulness practice, we train ourselves to simply see it as, you, first you recognize it, okay, this is that, and understand how does it arise. In every case, it arises from some kind of attachment. Attachment either because you didn't get what you had wanted or you got what you didn't want. And then it, it triggers off these things because, you know, basically we're living simply for the external uh, world and, and we're, we're caught in these emotions and you can't control the world around you. So people are constantly plagued by these emotions and get trapped by them and then unfortunately sometimes it leads to you know serious problems again as I mentioned like you know maybe taking a knife uh, so but first yeah you investigate them and then once you see that or you keep asking you can keep asking yourself a question. First you say, okay, why am I getting angry? Well, so and so, you know, again. So there's attachment, expecting. You expected somebody to do something and they didn't do it, or they did the opposite. And then because of that, you are holding on to some expectation, the way you think people should be, or the way you, you think the world should be, but it's not the... The world doesn't care about you, and most people also don't care about you, maybe a few people. Uh, because ultimately everyone cares about themselves. Uh, so that's why people do all kinds of things, selfish things. So you understand that uh, it's basically it comes back to attachment, and the attachment comes back to the sense of I. Again, it's that evolution, the evolution of suffering. And so you analyze it like that. And you say, well, what is this I? And you realize oh, this I is just something we've created. And we've been pampering it and, and, and uh, you know, building it up and protecting it a whole life. A whole life is invested in it. And that's why it's, it's very, very difficult to to overcome. And when you try to attack, or when you try to take away the ego's goodies, take away its, uh, you know, what it's craving, it reacts. It reacts, and sometimes violently too. Because it's protecting, it's constantly protecting its whatever its investment is. But that leads to more and more suffering, unfortunately. So it's kind of like a, you know, a catch-22 or something. Uh, we want to be happy, but yet we're doing the things that create unhappiness, simply because we don't understand the process. And so investigate, you investigate, but we're using the Dhamma to investigate. The Buddha already did a, a homework for us. Oh, I don't want to listen to the Buddha. I don't want to listen to the Buddha. I'm as smart as the Buddha. So people try to figure it out on their own and fail, most of them. So the Buddha was a map maker. 
the map of the mind. And just as you might use a map to drive from here to California, how many people use maps? Of course, now they have Google, right? Okay, well, you trust Google, right? Why do you trust the machine? So we can trust the Buddha. He's been there, done that. So when he gives out a set of instructions, said this is the way it is, we can trust that, have faith in that, and practice it. But not blind faith. When we practice it, we see the, the results. Of course, not overnight maybe, but you know, give it a shot, right? Practice sila, mindfulness. You see, you see how that, that helps. Anyway. So after you've investigated them, then while you're investigating it, the emotion or thought may just vanish by itself. Because our thoughts and emotions don't like to be investigated. They like to hide in the dark. Uh, and so when you bring them into the light of wisdom, usually they, they vanish, or at least they dissipate, uh, or weaken their intensity anyway, because they can't withstand the light of truth. And if you do that enough, then gradually they wither on the vine like leaves in the autumn that uh, lose their energy and fall off. So the same way with our old habits. Did the Buddha say reach a fourth jhanic state before transitioning to vipassana? I suppose that uh, depends on who you're talking to. You know, some teachers, according to their uh, understanding or interpretation of the sutras, may say absolutely. But others, through their, their understanding, may say, well, you know, maybe not necessarily, you know. Maybe the first jhana is enough. But you can attain fourth jhana practicing mindfulness. See, it's this idea that attaining jhana has to be done in some isolated situation where you have to go and sit in a room and you have to stare at a candle flame or you have to focus on one tiny object and then somehow gain perfect concentration and attain these four jhanas. That's not the only way of attaining the jhana. As I already mentioned that yesterday. But some people, you know, don't accept the, the, the other method. But it's very clear. Read the seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors of enlightenment are the mental qualities leading to enlightenment. And it starts with mindfulness. It starts with investigation. That means vipassana. And that leads to the energy, the joy, the tranquility of body and mind, and then jhana. Because the hindrances are suppressed in that. The hallmark of jhana means the five hindrances are suppressed. And you can suppress them through developing mindfulness and the concentrated awareness and the wisdom that you're cultivating to uh, those hindrances get suppressed and you attain the jhana. The next stage is equanimity and the next state is enlightenment. That's where, you know, the, the, the con confusion lies is in this idea that jhana has to be only practiced by focusing on one object in you know, an isolated place and, and uh, you know, developing this 
kind of, you know, jhanic states. Not that it can be attained through practicing mindfulness. And again, uh, I mentioned those two, those two approaches, samadhi pubangama vipassana. So that's attaining jhana first and then practicing vipassana. But the other method is vipassana pubangama samadhi, which is the seven factors of enlightenment method. kind of a complicated, little complicated question. Can you speak about crafting skillful, wholesome actions in the work of purifying the heart? Well, that's the whole point. First, you have to have mindfulness in order to observe the unwholesome intentions and urges that are arising, reflect on them, and then substitute the opposite wholesome qualities for those unwholesome qualities. And that is the way you purify the heart and you uh, cultivate the wholesome. It's applying right effort, mindfulness, right effort, uh, uh, and, and wisdom. And we'll, we'll talk more, hopefully, on the last uh, day or two. Ah, finally somebody thinks like I do. <laughs> it seems like the mind actually creates the pain associated with aversion and desire. You hit it right on the head. And then makes us think it's coming from the adversive object. Yeah, that's what happens. When something, you know, makes us angry, we think the person is making us angry. No, the anger is already inside you. The person does something, it just it triggers it out, that's all. It's already inside you, otherwise it wouldn't come out. See, there's, there's two causes of suffering. One is the circumstantial cause, which is... Just anything going on around you could trigger off uh, some, some pain or suffering. And then there's the substantial cause, which is already the accumulated uh, seeds of greed, hatred, and delusion and ego attachment that are already inside of ourselves. So that anything could happen, even slight little inconsequential things, you know, people can blow up over the smallest little matters. That's not coming from outside. That was just like, you know, they're boiling inside anyway and it has to get out. So they pick on anything to let it out. Otherwise they'll explode. <clears throat> and also, greed and hatred are just excuses for the ego to uh, you know, get excited. The ego needs desire and aversion for its activity. The ego always has to be doing something. Because once it starts doing, stops doing something, it starts disappearing. So it creates things to do. And greed and hatred are the things that roil its juices. You know, when you feel angry, your juices are really boiling and ego feels really alive. That's why people like that. Or the greed. It makes the ego feel alive. So those are excuses just for the ego to exist. The objects are not that important, really. 
whether it's a desirous object or it's a, a painful object. It's just a way to reassert re itself. Physical pain is maybe uh, will cut you a break. You know. Physical pain is a little bit uh, different. But it's still, I mean, even the Buddha had physical pain and he didn't particularly care for it. So to get away from it, he went into jhana and, and so on. or uh, things like uh, that. Uh, but it's the other types of uh, painful feelings associated with the... Uh, you know, the other senses, primarily. And this is another thing. This is the connection between the feeling and the perception. Or the, you know, usually it's the object that we think we want. But actually, it's, uh, it's the object isn't that important. It's the feeling that we want. We want pleasurable and uh, feeling and get away from painful feeling. And also not having. The pain is not having something. And so once you strive and get something, you lose your interest in it very quickly. And then you have to be doing something else. Because again, the ego exists entirely in relation to its doing. So that's why we always have to be doing something. Because otherwise the ego feels impotent. So we think we want an object, but that's just an excuse to do something. Like, you know, going window shopping. Or shopping, for example. How many times you went shopping, you thought you really needed something, a gadget for the house or some clothes, and you went and bought something, and then you came home and you put it on the counter and you actually never even used it. Anybody ever do that? Or maybe you used it once, then it went in the attic or the closet. And we accumulate all this stuff and you have to have a yard sale to make room for more. It's simply because, you know, the objects are not that important. We think they are, but it's an excuse just to be active and doing something. Otherwise, the ego will feel impotent. And that's why it's difficult for people to meditate. Just sitting around doing nothing. They get you know, bored. Or, you know, they, they feel uneasy. I'm not going to go into particulars, but this basic question says, uh, you know, I get along with everybody. I'm an easygoing person, but, you know, one certain person, you know, pushes my buttons and, uh, you know, sets, sets me off. They're the only person, you know, that does that. Uh, what are ways to remain mindful when somebody does something hurtful? First of all, realize they're sick. They're hurting also. And the, and the way that they express their hurt is by lashing out at somebody else. Usually it may be their significant other uh, or the, the nearest person nearby. And people are like hospital patients. Even your enemies are people that, you know, or do things that hurt you or whatever. That's the basis of metta. You know, instead of acting back out in, 
in anger back to them, which, you know, we know certain people do, if you read the news, uh, then uh, you regard them as a hospital patient. When you go to the hospital, you don't get angry at the patients there because they might, especially if you go into a, a mental hospital and somebody sticks their tongue out at you and, you know, they're just, they, they can't control that. And you might have got angry in the beginning and then the nurse says, you know, they do that to everybody. They, you know, then you say, okay. I, you know, then it don't upset you no more, right? You thought they were doing it to you. But because they're not in control. So that's the way we have to relate to other people around us that may be doing these kind of things. And that's the basis of metta. Uh, to, to wish them, wish they were free from their disease. Wish they were, they were free from the greed, hatred, and delusion. It's greed, hatred, and delusion that makes people bad. Not, not the person. Not their heart. You know, it's greed, hatred, and delusion. So that's what we wish them freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. Wish they could learn the Dhamma, practice meditation. <clears throat> or just thank metta toward it. Send metta. That might actually change the mind of that person. Because actually I, I read a book by a psychologist. It was very interesting. Unfortunately, I forget the name of the book. But it was about a psychologist who, who was a marriage counselor. And he did experiments, kind of clandestine experiments. So there was a husband and wife who, you know, naturally loved each other in the beginning. But after a while, they, you know, they got to a point where they wouldn't even talk to each other. They were in the same house, they had separate bedrooms, and when the husband came home, the wife would stay in their room and not even come out or anything, and they might just see each other passing in the house, and, and you know, really this bad feeling. And so, they, you know, this guy went to a marriage counselor, and he said, uh, you know, think loving thoughts toward your wife at work. And so... He, you know, he tried to cultivate some metta, you know, in, in his mind, and sending metta to the wife, and uh, so on. And then, <clears throat> little by little, when he, he he came home, one time the wife was outside the door. That means she actually came out instead of hiding in a room when the husband came home. She came out. Maybe they didn't say anything. And a few days later, you know, uh, finally the, the, the wife was kind of uh, being more kind of open and friendly. And then, you know, the husband brought some flowers. And, and, then, and then, so it's the, the thought. This is what I said in the, on the first day about our thoughts are like radio waves. And they go out and they can go into another person's mind, even unconsciously. The wife didn't know this experiment was going on. That's why it was an experiment. And so, you know, the, the guy was telling the husband to keep on cultivating these thoughts. And th that wife was somehow receiving those thoughts and it helped to change her mind about the husband, but she didn't know why. So that's just an example of how you know, our thoughts can be you know, effective like that. And that's why the, the you know, right thought is a very important part of development of the mind. And, you know, metta, karuna, the four Brahma, Vihara types of uh, uh, thoughts and so on. What animates us? If there is no self, what gives us life? The life force. The, the, the pranic energy or whatever you want to conceive of it. You know, it's the electrical energy of the, of the universe. Uh, that's what uh, gives us life. 
was in, in yoga, it's, it's called prana, and Chinese text it's called qi, and uh, you know, but basically it's sort of the, you know, the electrical energy of the universe. It animate, gives all of, of life, but essentially it's also pure awareness. Or the, what is called the deathless state, to use the Pali, uh, the Pali terms for the unconditioned state, uh, called the deathless state, the state that was never born and never dies. Uh, what should we read or study to learn more? Meditate. You don't need to read or learn anything. <laughs> Once you directly experience that state of pure awareness, then you'll know. How do beliefs of various sorts of color, oh, how do beliefs, different types of beliefs color our experience of the five aggregates? Uh, well, basically, when you say five aggregates, basically it's just our whole, the body-mind experience. And the what you believe definitely colors what you're going to do in the world, you know, especially religious beliefs. Based on religious beliefs, people do different things, right? They have different beliefs of what the world is, what's after death, this and that, how you should live your life. And so it colors their whole uh, life, especially particular religions that, you know, we, we know. Uh, and the way you believe is the way you're going to think. The way you think is the way you're going to speak. The way you speak is the way you're going to act. Actually, I usually talk about this on the last day when we're talking about the Eightfold Path. So I'm not going to go into it more than that. But yes, a belief. That's why right view is the very first step of the Eightfold Path. Right view. Get your views right. Once your views are right, everything else follows. You mentioned the mind knowing as the sixth sense. Is this similar to intuition? Mm, yes, I would say it's uh, similar to intuition. Is the present moment awareness in that contains, you know, the wisdom? Is the wisdom of Anicca Dukkha That's why when a person, you know, has that experience where they transcend the ego and break through the self-delusion and experience that transcendent state beyond self, I, and other, that's tantamount to enlightenment. or at least the first stage of enlightenment. Is repeating silent mantras an effective way to establish concentration? How about mindfulness? Hey, how about mindfulness? That's what we've been talking about, right? Now, mantras, whether you even recite a mantra like I chant Namo Buddhaya, okay, that's like a mantra. That can help in just kind of quieting the mind and so on and creating a kind of a peaceful vibration to help the cells of the body and nervous system to relax. Uh, and that is what enables you to get concentration, not necessarily the mantra, but it's the relaxation and uh, that comes 
out of that. Or if you keep on repeating the mantra uh, long enough, then uh, yes, then you reach this state where the other types of thoughts and subside and then you reach a state of concentration. So, you know, many religions use the, these mantras. Even Tibetan meditation uses hundreds of mantras. And even some uh, Thai forest monks use mantra like Buddha. They have you chant Buddha while you're breathing in and or Bud while you're breathing in and Do while you're breathing out. So it's the same kind of thing. They can be useful. Uh, but useful in the sense that they help bring you to the state of stillness. But you can get that same state through practicing the breathing awareness and and uh, moment to moment uh, mindful attention also. So th- you know, there's so many different types of practices. But what are you going to do with that stillness? That's the important part. It's not reaching stillness. What are you going to do with that stillness? Are you just going to hang out and stillness, 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 and then, you know, come out and be the same? Or are you going to use that stillness to penetrate, you know, penetrate into the subtler and subtler realms of feeling perception and come to the essence of the mind. Transcend the ego consciousness. That's what you're supposed to do with the stillness. Not get stuck in what's called the trap of tranquility. Too many people get stuck in the trap of tranquility. You know, you've been meditating for many days and many weeks, many months, and, you know, not getting much... uh, you know, success and you know, struggling, and all of a sudden one day you reach tranquility, and it's like, ah, oh, that's enough for me. That's all I ever wanted. <laughs> and you don't want to do anything else. And then when you come out of it after one or two hours, the mind starts just going back to its normal functioning, and it hasn't really uh, done any kind of essential purification. I'm going to mention some of these things on the last uh, day's talk too. I love podcasts and audio books. I love listening to them as I do other things. Does mindfulness mean that I should stop? Not necessarily. But, uh, you know, it's again, what are you going to do with that information from the podcast? What are you going to do from, with that information from the audio book? If you listen to them while you're doing other things, that means it's not going to penetrate very deeply. If you listen to it while you're totally still, or you're sitting and kind of meditating and listening, then it's going to go, the meaning, the deeper meaning is going to go deeper in. Especially Dhamma. Dhamma is not just ordinary, ordinary information. Dhamma is something very special. You can't hear out on the street. And you have to be in a right frame of mind because it's, it's, it goes against our ordinary thinking. That's why whenever you go to listen to Dhamma talks, you know, basically, you know, you're not doing anything else except sitting there listening. That's why they don't allow you to, you know, check your cell phone while you're listening to a Dhamma talk or texting and this and that. Because uh, otherwise you're going to miss the important uh, information. Although I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but, uh, you know, you still may, you know, get some useful benefits 
but uh, some of these questions are kind of similar to other ones. Per your explanation, vipassana meditation is not just the time we spend on the cushion, but the moment-to-moment awareness of sensation in the body or mind while we go about our daily life. Am I correct? Yes, correct. Kind of. <laughs> no. uh, you know, People say, okay, I practice Vipassana meditation. It usually means, you know, they sit down for an hour and they, you know, they practice Vipassana. But then when a lot of people get up and they, they're in a rush because they already spent one hour, they, they're, they're busy. They, they get up and they, after two minutes, everything they got in that Vipassana is gone. I mean, not always, but, you know, especially if you're rushing about. So, and especially if you think it's done only sitting. That's why I have you standing, walking, even laying down, even doing yoga. Every single time in any posture, any movement, that's the way you, ideally, because that's the way you will rapidly make progress. when you you see that it's it's just a, a continuous state of of mind and, and awareness, but it's very very difficult for most people to continue that. So only on retreats usually is the time when that's why we advise people to take advantage of this valuable time. You don't have this kind of time all the time to dedicate to the practice. Because uh, you know you're not going to be able to do it in your daily life for the most part. So you know, make the take, make the best advantage of these next couple of days that you're here, and you have basically almost you know ideal, you know, conditions for for doing that. Also on the on the last day and the uh, closing talk and so I'm going to talk about you know, how to practice mindfulness in the daily life and so on some little extra things one can do. Oh, I knew I was going to get this question. You said sense objects are mere smells, sounds, words that we shouldn't react to. I don't know if I said that, but uh, not all of them. But living in the world, we still need to distinguish and discern between things. So if, we, if we smell gas... We just uh, leave it, or we, you know, so, or so it doesn't kill us. Or you know, if a fire is, a, if a house catches on fire, just heat element. Heat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, the meditation practice is a, is simply a training ground. And then we have to use our common sense. But it helps us to avoid and not react to the unnecessary things that we don't have to, the things that don't really concern us very much. Like if somebody lets some air out their backside and it comes by you and you're, that's no big deal. It's not going to burn down. 
right? So that's the kind of thing you should not react to, just smelling, smelling. But certainly if you smell a, a fire or somebody screaming or whatever, you, you can pay attention. So you learn how to discriminate, but you, with wisdom. So you learn how to filter out the unnecessary reactions, which constitute probably 80% of people's reactions are unnecessary. Maybe 20% are really necessary. So that's, that's what you, you get the, that kind of cutting edge awareness to uh, conserve your energy. Actually, mindfulness meditation is a conservation of energy. We're conserving our energy. Everybody talks about save the energy, conserve the energy, use energy-saving light bulbs, turn the lights off, do your carbon footprint thing. You know, the material world. What about our mind? What about the energy of our own mind and body? We waste it. That's why people get all burned out because they're wasting their energy, they're wasting their thoughts. Then they have to go sleep because, uh, you know, they wasted all their mental energy. So mindfulness is a conservation of energy. It's an ecology. And we can use that saved energy for doing what we really should do or what is, you know, skillful to do in terms of the Dhamma, rather than wasting it on so many useless things. Every time you, you know, read, you're wasting your physical energy. You have to breathe faster to, to get more oxygen. And thinking uses lots of oxygen too. It wastes a lot of energy. But when you conserve that energy, it goes into concentration and it goes into the present moment. Think about that. See, every time you move around and, you know, like, that's why you can't get concentration, because you're wasting that energy. But when you sit still and don't move, then that goes into the power of the concentration. And that's why tomorrow we're going to have the Adittan, Adittan, for those who are familiar with the Goenka courses. I won't reveal it yet. <laughs> I notice that when I practice slow, mindful moving, some aversion arises, especially when I'm taking forever to scratch an itch. <laughs> what should I do? Move slower. Because the itch will go away and you can conserve your energy. This is the wonderful thing about impermanence. We got an itch arises, right? And somehow we think it's going to be permanent. How can I live another 50 years without an itch? So, so, <laughs> so we think we have to get, get rid of it. And so we're just about ready to, you know, reach up. We're wasting our energy, and then it disappears by itself. And you've just wasted your energy. So if you give it a few more seconds, it's going to vanish anyway. And you don't have to waste your energy getting rid of whatever, which, which is already going to go away because of impermanence. Like a disturbing sound. Some people are talking or disturbing your meditation. And you're getting angry about it. And you're about ready to get up out of your seat and go to the window and shout, Hey, shut up! And then you, you, know, you start getting up and standing up and all of a sudden they stop talking. And go. 
So how much energy have you wasted getting upset about anything? No. So this is how, what we have to apply to so many of our distractions. And even your own thoughts. Your thoughts are also going to change. If you don't feed them or give them undue attention, they'll vanish. Or at least go away and, you know, and you pay attention to something else. And forget about that thought. So naturally, slow mindful meditation because your mind's in the future and it wants to get to somewhere fast. Or it wants to get somewhere. So that's why when a teacher tells you, oh, you have to walk slower, then naturally this aversion arises because the ego wants to do what it wants to do. So it's basically to surrender. You have to surrender that kind of strong ego and I wanting to do something. I'm having a lot of exciting thoughts of Planning, probably planning the future. Yeah, of course it's exciting because our mind is always in the future. You live for the future. That's why you create all kind of exciting things to do because you you get bored very easily because the mind is that's its its nature. That's the way we we've trained it. It's very hard to stop thinking. What should I do? You should have done it some years ago. No, you have to start to, whenever you notice that, just be aware of it. Ah, planning, planning, hoping, hoping. And just keep coming back. And uh, you have to get pleasure out of the present moment. Once you start getting pleasure out of the present moment, then it will be very easy to let go of those type of thoughts. Or get some pleasant feeling in the body. You know, most people say, oh, I don't have any feeling in the body, or it's just all pain. Well, that's because you haven't taken care of your body. You haven't done a proper exercise. But doing things like deep breathing and yoga exercise, if you do it enough on a regular basis, then you, uh, and, and then, you know, practicing body-centered awareness, where any moment you just pause and stop and come to the body, you can you know, just feel all these nice, subtle, uh, for the most part, pleasant uh, sensations going on. The blood pulsing in your arteries and other little kind of waves of energy and, and, and so on. That's when it's very nice. You can just hang out with that for long periods of time. But most people don't have that because they, you know, their body is a pit of pain because of, you know, so many unskillful ways of living or just not practicing. So that's the thing. We have to, you know, uh, create this, uh, you know, the, the, and a different type of uh, pleasure. And the body is one way of of doing that because it, we always have it with us. It's always immediately available. It's the only thing that's actually trustworthy. It's the only thing that we can trust. And it's going to be with us until we die. Everybody else will leave you. And so therefore we should make friends with it. And we should cultivate the kind of things that make it uh, user-friendly. And not only in the body, but also with the things uh, around us, too.
How does a Buddhist deal with non-Buddhist people? When, when the world doesn't understand non-self and is ego-driven, greedy, like in Buddhist, how do we deal with it? Uh, first you have to learn the Dhamma. And then you have to practice meditation. Then you'll understand how to deal with it. And don't be a Buddhist. Be a Buddha. There's a difference. You're going around waving your mala. Look, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Buddhist. Of course, you might say that about me because when I put this on, people immediately label me as a Buddhist. But, uh, okay. Finally. Just don't mix these up. Okay.